Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Well, hey everyone, welcome into the podcast. And this is feeling kind of strange because it's in real time, it's been like a month since we've actually done a show. And there's been a lot been going on between both of us right. in real time. Right? How, you, were, you were just in India ministering to pastors, right? Yep. We had a phenomenal trip there to India. Um, 450 or so pastors over the course of five days in three different locations. Pastor Danny and I were able to minister and it was just one of the richest parts of it. I'll keep this brief, Vinny, but one of the richest parts for me was I meet with these pastors by Zoom. Uh, I have six different groups I meet with uh, each week, every week, two a day on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and maybe a, a seventh group starting up in Pakistan pretty soon on Sundays. And one of the groups in particular, I've been meeting with for 20 months. I mean, when I first started this, so I know these people for 20 months, babies were born during the time of this, right? And I got to meet the baby, you know? And so you, you, you meet these people in person. It was really, really, really cool. And it was really just special. It was just a, a, an incredible time for us. So, yep. And for you, what's been going on with you? So for me, we were in the process of moving, which we kind of still are. I'm at my mom's house. I'm actually doing this episode from my mom's closet because believe it or not, closets are good places to record audio. And so uh, I'm sitting in her closet. It's just kind of awkward. And <laughs> I will come out of this thing soon. Just say, you shouldn't be wearing her clothes, though. I, mean, I know you're in her closet <laughs> and it's a good place to record, but you know, it's your mom's clothes. I mean, you could like at least leave that off. So that's what's been going on with me. That and just a random trip to the ER with my five-year-old son today as I got a call that he shoved a Lego up his nose. And so that was a proud moment. It was, it was. Uh, yeah. So All right, yeah. excellent. All right. Kid, kid, the kid really wanted Iron Man's mask in his nose. <laughs> so anyway, uh, hey, we've been going through the New Testament and so far we've been working through it canonically. So we started with Matthew and we've just gone through first Corinthians and what the heck we're in revelation right now. And so we, we do plan on going back and picking up at second Corinthians at some point going second Corinthians through Jude. However, like revelations, your gig, this is what yeah. you're, you're formally trained in on your PhD. This is what you've been writing about. This is what you're writing a commentary about right now. And so this is the plan is to uh, spend some time in revelation and not do it like we've done the other ones where we might breeze over some themes but actually we're, we're going to dive into this and probably right. do it we like we're working this out we don't even know how many episodes we're going to do on this it's just kind of well until the return there, of right? christ which is happening in oh i can't say but yeah well it would be fall. logically it's it's at the end of chapter three so when we finish that that's when the <laughs> so it'll go for happen, seven right? years <laughs> right <laughs> or 42 yeah. months exactly yeah. yes yeah or, or maybe midway through seven years who knows <laughs> no one we'll can know these yet. things so what are we going to do? Uh, how do we want to, we've already done some prep work. We've had some episodes on how, you know, replaying some shows we've done before, which I think were our first shows that we did together. Some uh, of the first ones. On. Yeah. And that's what the, that's yeah, what you've been listening yeah. to. For, if you're listening live now, the, for the last several weeks, we kind of replayed some of those because I was in India and Vinny was moving and, and going through ER with his kids, Legos up his nose. <laughs> yeah. What we want to do actually is this, is we want to actually encourage you to study the book with us. So instead of just listening to the podcast, and maybe, you know, we did four weeks on the Gospel of Mark and you read through the Gospel of Mark in four weeks and you kind of get a little bit. We want you to study the book of Revelation with us. So we're going to do one or two more weeks of introductory stuff and kind of lay some foundations out there. But this episode will go live the day it goes live that you're listening to this. If you're listening to this in real time, it goes live. There's actually going to drop on the DeterminedTruth.com website also under the blog posts. 
a study guide, a devotional guide. So I've been writing a, a year-long study devotional guide, reading through the New Testament in a year. And what I did is they were five days a week. And I ended up, it ended up going longer than a calendar year because I made 365 days out of the study guide. So that study guide is finishing up now. We have, it's going to have seven weeks in the book of Revelation, five days a week of the study guide. The study guides drop on the determinedtruth.com website on Friday. So actually it dropped a few days earlier from when you're listening to this. And you, I can email them too if you want, but you have to send me an email and let me know, hey, Rob, can you include me in the email list so I can get the, I can get the study guide just emailed out and it'll be a PDF that gets emailed out to you. Or you can pick it up on the determinedtruth.com website. So we want you to do that. And we want you to listen to the podcast. We also want to remind you that I've been doing a, a Zoom Bible study now for six or eight months. And that Bible study is posted on my YouTube page. So at Rob Downerple, not Determined Truth YouTube page, but at Rob Downerple YouTube page. And we have the episodes for, for that Bible study. So if you want to see me teaching through the book of Revelation, we just kind of jumped in with chapter one through 13, 15, whatever we're at now. Do you can watch that in the YouTube and see us processing that in a, in a class, and then of course this podcast here with Vinny and I processing it also, and then we're going to include some stuff in the study notes today, recommended reading and things of that nature, so you can go further and go and go deeper. We're also going to uh, include a lot of scholars. We're going to bring on. Hey, you tell us what you think the main themes are. Let's talk about this topic with this scholar, with that scholar. I have access, fortunately, to a lot of different scholarly resources and individuals. And so we'll have a lot of fun. And we really want to delve into it because we believe that this book is so important and its message is so important and relevant for the life of the church today. And I think that's important. And also, we're not going to just like talk eschatology and end time stuff in the book of Revelation. We're going to talk mm -hmm. about the church and life today and the mission of God's people and what it means. It'll take us a while before you see the fruit of that, but it's really going to be deep. So it'll be great. And that's exciting because oftentimes Revelation is known as the eschatology book, right. the end times book. And it's like, no, it's it, well, sure. Yeah, we're not denying that. But it's also ecclesiology and it's ethics and it's it's all these other things. It's everything else that you see in the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah. So Richard Baucom, one of the great authors in the, of New Testament scholarship today, mm -hmm. wrote a book a number of years ago and he titled it The Climax of Prophecy. And that's exactly what it is. This is the climax of the biblical yeah. story all put together in a nutshell for especially for the New Testament fulfillment and what it means to be God's people. And as we discussed in the last several episodes, as you were listening on apocalyptic and epistles and prophecy, it's very, very relevant to the people to whom John was writing and remains very relevant for us today also. Cool. So with that, uh, we're not going to work through the the you know tonight's episode. We're not going to start going through text, but let, let's do some more overview stuff. And okay. if there's any book that we really need to be prepared and, yeah. and have a foundation for it's the book of revelation other books we might just be able to dive in at first not this one uh so let, let's look at things a little different than we have in the previous four episodes let's start with a five minute summary of what you think the main points of the book of revelation are all right i think i can do it in less than five minutes but if you're going to give me five minutes i don't believe I can you. expand i'm timing bit. you so okay cool yeah let's go uh point number one god is the one on the throne God is the ruler of creation. God is sovereign. He's in charge, not Caesar. As we would say, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And so mm -hmm. he's the sovereign Lord of all things. So the story opens up in chapter four, the main storyline, and it's God on a throne and he's the one that's in charge. And then we find out as we continue through the story that he's brought victory through Jesus and through the suffering of Jesus. He's the lamb that was slain. 
God, however, desires to bring redemption to all humanity and the creation. I think that's very important to understand the distinction there. He wants to redeem humanity and so that all men might be saved, as Paul would say in First Timothy. But he also wants to bring redemption to the creation, to restore the creation as well. The nations, however, need to repent. And the question becomes, how is it that the nations repent? I, I, there's like two key questions that I would stress, and that would be, the throne of God starts in heaven in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, but by 21 and 22, the throne of God and heaven comes down to the earth. So heaven and earth meet again and become one as it was in Eden. So what has to happen so that that might occur, that heaven can come down to the new creation, death can be obliterated, no more suffering, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, and God dwells with us, with humanity there. And secondly, how is it that the nations are redeemed? Because in Interestingly, throughout the book of Revelation, you see that the nations are kind of opposed to Christ. And then there's thunder and uh, yeah, uh, I'm not there yet. Fashing I mean, of lights. Lord, are... if you want to, like, yeah, if you want to, throw... <laughs> I'll tell you when I. Okay, never mind. Apparently, oh, there we go. There we go. Apparently, he's gonna do his thunder whenever he wants to do his thunder. So the nations seem opposed <laughs> to Christ. They seem opposed to God's people and to the work of God throughout the book of Revelation. Yet in Revelation 21, it says that the nations walk by the light of the new Jerusalem. So that's kind of the question. There's two questions, and I think those two questions go hand in hand. And that is, how is it that God's throne is in heaven, but or what needs to happen so that it comes down to the earth and the new creation and death is destroyed? And how is it that the nations walk by the light of the new, new Jerusalem? And I think those two things go hand in hand. So I think what we find out is that God's delaying the end. God's delaying the time where the new Jerusalem comes down because he wants the nations to be redeemed. And in the meantime, the nations are still in power and they do things that the nations do, which causes war and famine and bloodshed and all kinds of bad things. And then God delays and delays and delays. And ultimately the nations are redeemed by God's people, faithfully, lovingly, sacrificially laying down their lives for the nations. In other words, the nations are redeemed the same way we all are redeemed. It was Jesus's loving death and sacrificial death that brings redemption to creation. And it's our loving and faithful death for the sake of the nations that brings about the redemption of creation as well. I think that's kind of the, the key summation. How did I do? What, how much time? Besides God's interrupting with the, with the thunder and lightning. Well, yeah, and we, we also did get silence on the earth for 30 minutes, right? Uh, but uh, it was uh, a little over three minutes. So, hey, okay, not that. bad. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Look at, that. Look, look at you once now, in a there's row. There's more. You know, but... uh, and, and that more, of course, becomes... The fact that, oh, it ain't going to be easy. It's not like, oh, okay, so Christians just faithfully, lovingly, sacrificially lay down their lives for the nations, or the way the Gospel of Mark says, we take up our cross and follow Jesus. And that loving, sacrificial life of God's people brings redemption to the nations. Oh, guess what? There's a dragon, Satan, who stands opposed to God's people and to the work of God and has done lots of things, namely empowering two different beasts and a prostitute. And they represent the things that are that oppose the work of God's people, that try to hinder the work of God's people, but also try to lure God's people in by deception and to minimize our witness and to undermine our witness and even to lure us away from the kingdom altogether. And that's why John's writing saying, hey, guys, we have this mission to do, namely be the faithful, loving, sacrificial witness of God's people. But we also have an enemy that's hindering us. And some of you Right? You see this in the seven letters or seven messages of chapters two and three. Some of you have already given in and you've already been 
You think you are rich, but you're poor, blind, naked, and miserable. I'm, I'm standing at the door knocking, and you need to repent. Or the church in Sardis, wake up, right? You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Or Revelation 18, verse 4 says, come out of her, my people. So the church has been seduced, and the people have got it. Some of them, at least, have been seduced. And so what does that mean for us? What does that mean for them? And what does that mean for us today? I think we need to ask that uh, also. So you're writing a commentary right now. We've talked about that. Uh, this long-awaited, the most anticipated commentary in the history of mankind. I'm yes, it is. At this absolutely. Point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you think so. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to finish. So it is. Yes, yeah. It's been a burden, yeah, too. It's been a joy, but it's your been publisher a Your publisher thinks so because he's been hearing about it for a while. Yeah. But um, one of the approaches you're taking in this commentary is that we should read Revelation as a story. Yeah. Um, and you've talked about that a lot. What does that mean? How does that help us? And how might, be the, how, how might that be different than a popular way or that the way that many of us grew up learning how to read it. Yeah. So as we go through the book chapter by chapter, which we'll do in a few weeks, uh, begin in a few weeks, you'll, we'll see this play out and I'll kind of keep referring back to it. But the first thing to understand is the fact that it's a work of literature. And in that work of literature, John's crafted a story. It's a true story. It's a real story. And it may or may not have a one-to-one -one correspondence of reality. In other words, Satan's not actually a seven headed dragon. There's actually chasing the people around. Jesus is not actually a lamb, but he is the lamb of God. The key then is, is that as we understand how the story is, is playing out and how John's writing the story, it becomes very significant for various interpretive matters. And we'll say some of them as, as we proceed. But the basic story is that I think the way to look at it is there's two major stories. The first story is the first three chapters. The first story, John is on Patmos, Revelation 1, verse 9, on an island called Patmos. And he hears a voice like a trumpet. He looks up to see what the voice is, and it turns out he sees Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? Write what you see and send the letters or the messages to the seven churches. So John then describes what he sees, Jesus, as the resurrected, glorified Christ. I was dead, and I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades, which is meant to give us hope. Hey, guys, if they kill you, it doesn't matter. Jesus, they killed him too, and he's was alive, and he's got the keys of death in Hades. They can't, they can't banish you forever. Victory is in our hands, and there's, there's your measure of hope. But then he goes on and writes the seven messages to the seven churches or seven letters. We'll just call them letters because it's easier in chapters two and three. At the end of chapter three, when he's done with the seventh letter, you're like, okay, he's done because that's the story. Write what you see and send it to the seven churches. But all of a sudden, chapter four, verse one is like, oh, and I saw heaven open. You're like, oh, there's a new scene. Uh, the, the story changes locations now. And John says, and I was taken to heaven and I saw there's a new story. So the first story ended with this completion of the seventh letter. The second story now, chapter four, which I think is really chapters four through 11, describes, begins with God sitting on a throne. Okay, there you go. God's the sovereign one of all history. And as we discussed with Apocalyptic on our podcast on Apocalypses, Apocalypse means to unveil, to, to reveal something. It's not, it's not hiding something in mysterious language. It's actually revealing something, namely the kingdom of God, like Jesus' parables. They reveal the nature of the kingdom of God, but the ones who don't have ears to hear don't understand what it means. So you have to come to Jesus for the answer. Same idea. Book of Revelation is doing the same thing. And so God's sitting on a throne. He's actually the one in charge, even though it looks like Caesar's in charge. In chapter five, God's got a scroll in his right hand, verse one. And so, okay, here's, there's a drama. So God's sitting on a throne. He's got a scroll. Oh, guess what? The scroll's sealed up with seven seals. And John looks everywhere on heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And no one is worthy to open the scroll or even look at it. And John says, I begin to weep. So whatever the scroll is, it's really important because John's like weeping that no one can even open it. 
And then he hears one of the elders say, you know what? Don't weep because the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome so as to open the book or open the scroll. Oh, good news. And John says, then I look to see the lamb. The, uh, obviously, he's going to look to see the lamb. He says, then I saw a lamb that was slain. So, well, it looked like it was slain because it was standing there. Of course, we know it actually was slain. It's just alive now, right? And the lamb is then receives worship. And it says, worthy are you to take the book and open the scroll because you were slain. And you purchased for God from men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. And they will reign forever. Ah, there's your story, right? God's people are going to have been purchased by Christ and they will reign on the earth. But what's on the scroll? So then chapter six, Jesus begins to break open the scroll, break open the seals that by which the scroll is closed. And here we go. First six seals are broken. Then we get to chapter 10. We'll skip forward to chapter 10. All of a sudden there's an angel, an angel like being who's described kind of like Jesus and kind of like God, but it says it's an angel. But either way, he's got a book and it's open. Now, if we understand that this is a story that's progressing, that scroll in chapter five is really important. It has to be because John's weeping because no one can even open it. And then Jesus is worthy to open it and Jesus breaks its seals. So the reader of the story is waiting for the scroll to be revealed, like what's on it. So when we get to 10, there's a scroll that's open. It's gotta be the same scroll. It's open. And John looks at the, at the angel and he says, you know what? Take the scroll and eat it. He's like, okay which is what a prophet does. He eats the word of God. Ezekiel chapter two, he eats the word of God or eats the scroll. And then it says in chapter 10, verse 13, or verse 11, I'm sorry. It says, now go prophesy. Ah, John's being commissioned as a prophet. He's eaten the scroll and he's going to go prophesy. What does he prophesy? Chapter 11, the two witnesses. Ah, this is the climax of the story. God, the scroll is God's will. Uh, that's pretty, pretty evident. It's God's will. And it's, it's, the story, the, the question I asked at the beginning, you know, how does heaven come down to the earth and how the nations walk by its light of the new Jerusalem? What has to happen? The answer is, oh, the two witnesses, which I think is, we'll discuss this in detail, but it's all of God's people. And they faithfully proclaim the word of God, the testimony of Jesus, and then they're killed. And then they're resurrected. And when they're resurrected, it says, great fear fell upon all those who were beholding. And they gave glory to the God of heaven. There you go. And then the seventh trumpet happens and the end arrives. So there's your main storyline. And that is, it's about the scroll and how God's will is going to be revealed and, un and unveiled to humanity. And the content of the scroll is John's prophesying, which is the two story, the two witnesses. And that's us, God's people, faithfully proclaiming the gospel and lovingly sacrificing our life for the sake of the nation. So, so that's your main storyline. And when you understand that, things start to fall into place and, and make sense here. And we don't have to worry about what does this mean? And does this happen before that happened? Or what? It's like, well, he's telling you a story. That's what's happened now. And then we can begin to ask, well, how does this play out in space and time? But he's not describing what's happening in space and time. He's describing what's happening uh, in God's grand narrative. Hey, everyone. We want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. So with that, 
you're talking about uh, not just a story, but stories all have outlines or yeah. structures. And I know for me, I I never really thought about that till I in Bible college. I took my first biblical interpretation class, and we spent a lot of time on this. And it was like, oh, I didn't I didn't even realize to think about the Bible this way because mm -hmm. you just kind of read the Bible like Bible. That, that's the way I, I was. But all stories do this. I'm thinking of like the movie Castaway uh, with Tom Hanks. And it's like, even there, there's a, there's a basic outline. Like he's in civilization. He goes on the airplane and he's on this deserted Island for however long. And then he gets, he has to go back into civilization. Even there, there's, there's like a basic outline yep. of what's right. happening in the story. And you could break it down obviously yep. into subcategories from there and really parse things out. But all stories have some sort of outline yes. and not even just stories like the, the book of Ephesians. It has an outline to it. Like any book of the Bible is going to have this sort of thing because people are, are creating and writing literature in this regard with some sort of flow and deliberate thought. They're not just randomly putting down stuff. So for you, you're really, and I've, I've seen parts of early drafts of your commentary, you're spending a lot of time focusing on the outline and you're saying like, hey, no, you have to understand the flow of yes. revelation and how it's structured to get it. It's not about just decoding this one thing here and this one thing here. It, it, a lot of what we're being communicated happens through that narrative and through that outline. That's right. And if you pick up a commentary or a scholarly work on the book of Revelation, you're going to find out that one of the f popular sayings is that there's basically as many outlines to the book of Revelation as there are commentators. Everybody has their own outline. And one of the problems that, f that happens is, is that people take to the book of Revelation what they think it's trying to say, and they kind of, oh, I see this and this and this, and, and then they make it fit. Or they assume there's seven sections and, and here they are, and it, and they, and they make it fit. Or they assume that John's describing some futuristic thing and they make it fit. I'm actually amazed that the scholarly work has actually not been done. I mean, some of it's been done. Richard Balcom in particular has done a lot of really good stuff on this. But here's the thing. We did this actually, Vinny, when you were uh, one of my, my Greek students. The biblical text was read out loud and heard. Mm -hmm. Now, even if you were reading it, even if you're the one that happened to be up in the front of the church that was reading the manuscript, there are no breaks between words. The, the Greek manuscripts have no spaces between words, between anything. It's just a running script. And so you're reading it and you can figure out where the words are and where the pauses are and things of that nature. But you don't see chapter breaks. You don't see, you don't see breaks between words, let alone chapter breaks, let alone paragraph breaks and section breaks and things of that nature. The way the author communicates that in Hebrew and in Greek in the ancient text is it's heard. You hear something as a key. Oh, he made that same statement earlier. That must mean that that was the beginning. And now this is marking the end. In our, a couple of our podcasts, we've referred to them as, as, as inclusios. Or when we get there, the book of James, for example, my beloved brothers, mm -hmm. that phrase as, a, as the first words of a sentence is actually surprising because Greek sentences usually begin with and or mm -hmm. uh, and or for or, or nor or, or but something like that. And when there's none of those words there and something else like my brothers, it, it actually captures your attention or a command an imperative like do this or wake up. It's meant to be a structural indication. And so when you start to look at the structure of the text really carefully, when we did Greek, you were one of the things I said to you guys the very first couple of weeks of, of our class, I said, look, this is going to be a lot of work. You know, Greek in seminary and Hebrew in seminary is a massive amount of work. And what I would tell you is this, you're going to do as twice as much work in this class as you do in any other class. Mm -hmm. But it's only going to be rewarding if you actually learn how to use the Greek. In other words, if you're just learning Greek to translate, you don't need it. We have plenty of English Bibles. 
and plenty of computer tools that can help you translate the text. So your pastors don't need to know Greek to do that stuff. It's going to help you to know Greek or Hebrew because you can read scholarly works that might have Greek and Hebrew references in it. And, oh, I, I know what they're saying, and you can kind of get by. It opens up more literature for you. But it's also going to help you when you can learn to read the text more constructively going, oh, I see this. I see this. This is clearly the beginning and the end. And that kind of work, I'm surprised, has not been done with the book of Revelation. But if you do it, you begin to realize, oh, this was what's going on. Kind of as a side note, for example, the famed millennium passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, which we're not going to get into tonight. If you look at the structure of what's happening in that section, it actually answers a lot of the questions. People have these assumptions. Hmm. Oh, it means this. But when they say that, they're ignoring the, the structure that's really evident within that section there. And we'll discuss that in about 30 or so weeks when we get there. <laughs> um, but so what you have in the book of Revelation, and I, and I know you're listening to this on a podcast. And, and if you have the ability, if you're driving a car, don't stop, you know, don't look down your Bibles or open up your phone apps. But if you have the ability to stop and open up a Bible right now, what you'll notice is that there's like four major sections in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 9, 4, verse 1, 17, 1 through 3, and 21, 9 and 10. I'll say them again. And I'll put these in the show notes. And by the way, one of the things that we'll do, Vinny, is we'll put certain notes in the show notes so people can follow along with the outline of what we're talking about cool. uh, as they're listening to the podcast. So 1-9, and let's read these passages uh, briefly too. So 1-9, 4-1, 17, 1 through 3, and 21, 9 and 10. And what you're going to notice in these four passages, these verses that we gave, that we gave is that John is, is in a different location in each, of the play, in each instance. So go ahead. you got uh, chapter one, verse nine, Vinny? Yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead. So I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Paptos. Let me just do this again. Okay. I'm reading from my Bible. It's too small. I don't have my reading glasses. Yeah, yeah. It's not I, too John, small. Your brother and partner. I, no, it keeps shrinking. <laughs> yeah, that's the way I think of it. <laughs> I didn't buy it with this size. Uh. Okay. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John's on Patmos and he hears a, a voice and he turns and he sees the resurrected Jesus. Now, chapter four, verse one, I'll read that one. If you want to turn to 17, one through three in mm -hmm. a second here. After these things, I looked and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. This is four, verse one. And the first voice, which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here. And I'll show you what must take place after these things. Now, actually, I'm going to read verse two also. Immediately, I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. So notice that John's changes locations. He was on Patmos. Now he's in heaven. And notice that he was in the spirit. That's going to be a key phrase in the next two passages also. And so this is John's way of marking now a new section of the text. All right, the next one's going to be chapter 17, verses one through three. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of uh, whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth had become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and 10 horns. So notice now he's in another location. He carried me away in the spirit, same phrase used in 4.1, or 4.1 in verse 2, into a wilderness. So he was in heaven, now he's in a wilderness. 
Notice also that this passage begins with one of the seven angels. And don't worry about this if you're listening here for the first time going, I don't know what that's talking about. Don't worry about it. But one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you. And then verse three, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Now let's look at 21 verses nine and 10. Revelation 21 verses nine and 10. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls for the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come and I will show you. That's identical, almost identical. That's 17 verse one. And I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down to heaven from God. So there you go. Another change of scene. What we'll spend a lot of time on later on is 17, one through three and 21, nine and 10 are really parallel because they both begin with one of the seven angels with the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come and I will show you. But note the same as four, one and two. He's carried away in the spirit and it's taken to a different location. So those are your four major scenes. So the book has a beginning and has an end, an introduction and a conclusion or a prologue and an epilogue. It has these four main scenes or what have you. And they're clearly marked. Unfortunately, you know, Richard Balcom has certainly pointed this out and scholarship is kind of jumping on board going, oh, I get it now. But uh, this is the, kind of the way we look at it. So there's four main sections. I think there's two stories. The one chapters one through three, John on Patmos seeing Jesus. And then four through 11, John going into heaven and seeing um, the scroll and the scroll being open and John prophesying. I think those are the two main things. And then there's two scenes at the end of the book or two uh, sections at the end of the book that describe one, describe a woman named Babylon, a great prostitute, and the other describing Jerusalem or the, or the new Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ. So that's, that's your main thrust of the book. And we'll kind of, we'll go over that many more times as, as we proceed. So one thing to point out as well, it, in a sense, this is, in a way to healthily deconstruct what we would view as a faulty way of reading revelation. But from a popular standpoint, as we infuse our theology into how to read revelation, one of the reasons for believing in, in a a pre-trib rapture view is that chapter four is the beginning of the rapture. And that, that phrase is often cited because he was taken away in the spirit. And so that's taken as a rapture. Well, the question is how many raptures, exist then if yeah, that right. if that phrase is happening multiple times are there multiple raptures and obviously would say no but it's the exact same phrase so you would assume that he'd be referring to the exact same event so it's just another one of those ways where we're going to say no let's not read our theology into this let's just try to figure out what's happening in the story of the book well we're going to draw theology from it but the key sure, then goes sure. back to the statement we made earlier and that is it's literature so in other words the phrase i was in the spirit he carried me away is a literary cue that we have mm-hmm. a change of scene or a new section now. It's a literary marker, like what we might call a chapter break or a paragraph heading to identify, okay, I'm transitioning from this and I'm transitioning to that. It doesn't mean John was actually raptured or the church was actually raptured because as you said, it occurs two more times later on and then nobody believes in like three raptures. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so obviously there's a repetition that happens with this phrase and we'll see this with other things as well. Like. Anyway, we won't even get into it. But uh, one of the things that you're pointing out is that John uses repetition to sometimes help us yeah. connect passages. Whoa, I just saw on your Zoom, there was some there's some more lightning and uh, thunder. Wait, look at this. This is a good Revelation uh, podcast. I wish people could see this right now. There's literally thunder and lightning happening yeah. here. Uh, here comes the thunder. Oh, here it comes, here it comes. Uh, see, there's too much you, compression on. I call you when I, know, I was it's... ready. <laughs> you're interrupting our podcast. It's like, you just can't call down thunder and lightning when you want, hey, you know, when you want. So Elijah did, but I'm wondering, yeah, is this the Armageddon part? That's what I'm wondering. But anyway, 
you're pointing out John uses repetition and that helps us connect passages that we might not have connected before uh, or we might be unsure of. And this is something where we just need to become better Bible hearers. We always talk about Bible reading, but no part of being a better better Bible reader is being a better Bible hearer because that's the way this would have been intended to be communicated. The the opening phrase says it, blessed those who reads aloud or, you know, the one one who reads aloud is singular. The one who, yeah, the one who yeah. le- reads aloud and blessed are those other people who are hearing it. It's right. And then blessed are those who do, who do what it says. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So, and that repetition is John's way of linking things together that becomes very, very important. I think we'll probably spend more time on this next week talking about some of the examples of that. But just as a kind of a couple nuggets right now, John is clearly intentionally counting words and phrases. The word blessed occurs seven times. There are seven blessings. Jesus is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, right? That's obviously the gospel of John. But the word lamb occurs 28 times. Certain titles for God appear seven times. I mean, it's just really, and and I have a list. And I've got a list. Okay, sorry. But um, I literally, it's got to be, I think I actually can look it up right here because I think I have the document open. I have a list of 24 pages it's a word document. It's 24 pages long of the key words. And it's, it's most of the words in the book of Revelation, not, not the verbs, but most of the, most of the nouns and um, adjectives and a few verbs and how often they occur in the book of Revelation. And I can't tell you how often it's seven times, it's 12 times, you know, just for example, really quickly here, the new Jerusalem is, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he came away in the spirit and I saw a holy city and that holy city has 12 gates. And it has 12 foundation stones and it has walls that are 144 cubits thick, which is 12 times 12. 12 just keeps occurring over and over and over again in the description of the New Jerusalem. So we have to recognize that and the, and the way John repeats words and links passages together. And again, it's literature first. And then we just start to draw its meaning from it as we as we proceed. So we'll do some of that next week. Just to dr- give you some more examples of that. That'd be fun. Just, just to drop in and pick your brain on this to get the perspective, because yeah. as myself, as a lay person, I'm a practitioner. I work in a church, obviously, but I'm not a scholar. I, I haven't done PhD level work on this. Uh, so that 24 page document that you have is that something that you created? Is that a result yes. of your own study? That's, I, I created. So, and this is the type of thing. This is the difference between what scholars offer us like someone like yourself, you've literally dedicated your life to studying this book. You study other things as well, but you're doing something like parsing out every word in this book. And you're looking for all these sorts of things that may or may not be there. You've probably spent time chasing down something that actually wasn't a thing, but but you're spending all this time in it. Right. And and, and you've studied, you've read everything about revelation. You've read the commentaries, you've read the history of the commentaries. Yeah. but, but I mean, a lot of it, you're, you're familiar with it. Right. And this is the thing that having someone who, when we use that word scholar, we're not throwing that around lightly. It's not a, just some sort of, you know, whatever grandiose title. It's someone who's, they're living in this world. They're doing this sort of work to really dive into something and helping us lay people uh, understand things that we just might not have seen. Yeah, fair enough. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we do at Determine Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. One of the things that we've talked about, especially when we were doing the Gospels, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about like power dynamics that were mm-hmm. happening in 
uh, in the Roman world, uh, bringing up Warren Carter, talking about, you know, just what was happening in terms of patronage and those sorts of things. And so we've, it's obviously this is happening. This is the background of the New Testament world. Um, how does this relate to the book of Revelation? I think this is one of the keys. The, the point, obviously, as I made at the beginning, is that fact that God's the one on the throne and not Caesar. Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. So as you look through the book of Revelation, this it's trying to remind the readers, the recipient, the hearers of the book in the seven churches going, hey, guys, I know you're under oppression from Rome. I know Rome's putting pressure on you for you to capitulate and give in to Rome and worship the gods and do these things, compromising your faith for economic security. Remember, you can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast, right? For economic security, for not just economic security, but for food. I mean, literally, the next day's food. You're wanting to give in. So he's reminding them that Rome looks like they're in power, but actually God's the one in power. And so when we look at the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus is described in chapter one, the very first description of Jesus in chapter one, verse five, and notice it's threefold. And that is he's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. And he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's all you need to know. Jesus is actually the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the faithful witness, meaning that's what I want you to do. Oh, they killed him. I know they killed him, but he's the firstborn from the dead. And because he's the firstborn from the dead, he's actually the ruler of the kings of the earth. So then you go to chapter five, which we alluded to a little bit earlier, and Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Don't weep, John, because no one can open the scroll because the lion has overcome. So it's to open the book and it's seven seals. Okay, awesome. He's a lion. A lion's a king. A lion's a, a powerful creature. This is awesome. But then John says in verse six, Revelation five, verse six, I turned to see and I saw a lamb that was slain standing. I saw a lamb as if it were slain standing there. And this contrast is, is incredible. The word lion actually occurs six times in the book of Revelation, but only once is it applied to Jesus. And yet the word lamb occurs 28 times in the book of Revelation and 27 of them are for Jesus. And in other words, John calls Jesus the lamb 27 times, but he only calls him the lion once. And so the point of that actually, and I did a sermon series on this back uh, a number of years ago, and I said, the book of Revelation actually is contrasting lion power and lamb power. Mm. Right? And the way we would describe this in the gospels would be that, well, the cross is the epitome of power. It's the way it's Rome used the cross to demonstrate its power over everyone else. But Jesus uses the cross to demonstrate his power also. The difference is Rome puts you on the cross, but Jesus goes on the cross himself. He suffers violence, whereas Rome uses violence. So I think this is huge in the way, way it's done. And maybe a significant passage again. Another thing to point out, and I think we might have said this in the first episode, and that is there's nothing in the book of Revelation, maybe the millennium passage is your one exception. That's nothing in the book of Revelation, except perhaps the millennium passage, that's not taught elsewhere, especially in the mm -hmm. New Testament. So you're not going to go to the book of Revelation and find something out that you didn't know from somewhere else. It's in, it's in the rest of the scriptures. We can find out, oh, guess what? The dragon's waging war against God's people. Well, Paul says our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We know that from Paul, right? Satan prowls around like a, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's from Peter, not from the book of Revelation. So we can find all this stuff there. So Mark chapter 10, I think is really significant. Verses 42 through 45. I don't know if you have that, Vinny, if you want to read it or whatever. But Mark 10, yeah, and the, the whole section surrounding this is really significant, but we won't get into it tonight. But verses 42 through 45. 
And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yeah. Jesus clearly contrasts the way we do power in the kingdom of God versus the way the nations do power. The kings of the Gentiles were lorded over those in authority, but not so among you. Among you, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So notice it's not only about power, but it's about how we actually do power, what, what we do with the power. And with Jesus uses power as sacrificially for the sake of the other, whereas the nations use it for uh, their own well-being and for military might and, and militarism. Uh, another way of looking at this, and then when you go to the, to the book of Revelation, is you see this contrast between Babylon and the, and the New Jerusalem. Now, we read 17, 1 through 3, and 21, 9 and 10, and we notice that they're clearly parallel. One of the seven angels with the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come and I will show you in both passages. And both passages describe women, Babylon, the prostitute, and Jerusalem, the bride. But those women are actually cities. Chapter 17 actually says, the woman whom you saw is the great city that reigns over the kings of the earth. So they're actually women, that, but they're not really women, they're cities. And if you go to chapter 17, verse 6, and I'll go ahead and read it, Revelation 17, verse 6, it says that I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. That's Revelation 17, verse 6. This woman's drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And then chapter 18, verse 24 says, And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. This is how Babylon does power. This is how Rome does power. This is how empires do power. And it's not the way Christ does power. And so this leads us back to Matthew 6, which I think is really significant. Matthew 6, 19 through 34, and it's Jesus says, look, you can't serve God and mammon. And this is why this is it's so relevant to us as well as it was to them. The church that John, the church that John's writing to, they were pressured and threatened and desiring to compromise for the sake of their own survival and well-being and, and flourishing, or maybe for us, we might say for our economic um, thriving, right? For our prosperity. What is it that we compromise? with the gospel and the kingdom so that we can have comfort, power, privilege, and security, which by the way, goes back to this, the parable of the sower, which I keep saying is, is so significant. So in Matthew six, Jesus says, look, you can't serve God and mammon. You'll either love one and hate the other, or you'll cling to one uh, and despise the other. And then he goes on to say, but for you store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves break it, do not break in and steal for where are your treasures, there will your heart be also. And then he says in verse uh, 25, don't worry about your life. Or why do you worry about your life? You know, as to what you will eat or what you'll drink or your body or what, you're, what you'll put on. Is life more, not more than food in the body, more than clothing? And then at the end of the passage, he says, but instead seek, this is verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his right, righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. I think this is what's going on. And that is, who are we going to follow? And that is Christ or power or privilege or comfort or security and that ultimately is the beast so you're titling titling this commentary revelation a love story and that's not what most people think about when they think of revelation because Re revelation is about the end of the world right which in the end of the world is apocalyptic right 
yes, and apocalyptic yeah. and in most people's conceptions is famines and bloodshed and war and um, stars falling from the sky and falling on the earth and mountains being thrown down in the, into the sea. And yeah, it's, it's cataclysmic. And it's like, no, it's a love story. And the way I would say it would be this, the entire Bible's a love story. Why would we mm-hmm. think Revelation is anything different? The Bible's a love story for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's what it's about. And yet somehow I think we have a conflict and I don't think we've recognized this conflict well enough. And I'm really interested when this commentary kind of does come out because I want to see what the scholarly world's going to say about it because I'm bucking up against the scholarly world a little bit on this. And we'll discuss this as we proceed through our, through our study uh, on the podcast. But I think many of the scholars in the book of Revelation, even they have succumbed to this understanding of God as this cosmic judge who sits upon his throne, which he is, but he sits upon his throne going, you know what? You didn't follow me. Well, guess what? I'm going to strike you with this and I'm going to strike you with this. And we've we've read the book of Revelation that way and go, oh, well, it's just because God's just. And they deserve, I mean, technically, since the wages of sin is death, God could have killed them all, but he didn't kill them. He just like gave them plagues and he gave them boils and locusts that torment them for five months. And they want to die, but they can't actually die because locusts won't have to let them die. It's like, wait a minute. Is that the God we serve that does that? And I began looking at this going, that's not what the text is saying. Look at this. Look, Look at it more carefully. What I think the text is saying, and we'll discuss this as we get to each of the passages, is that what we see in the seals, and the seals are actually the easiest one to use as an example. It's not God bringing wrath. It's what happens when the nations are in power. And God's delaying the return of Christ and the ultimate coming down of heaven to the earth because he wants the nations to repent. But by delaying it, he's allowing the nations to be in power still. And what do the nations do when they're in power? They cause war, which creates famine, which creates uh, bloodshed, which creates all kinds of catastrophes. And most of the people that suffer are the people, the average person. The way I say it is Vladimir Putin is eating the same meal today that he was a year and a half ago when when this war started. His lifestyle Mm -hmm. has not changed. But the people in Russia and the people in Ukraine are suffering tremendous as a result of this of this war that, that's taking place. That's what happens when the nation stay in, are in power. And I think that's what's happening there. And just like one's thought on this now, and we'll discuss it more in detail later, later on. To say that the seven seals are actually God's wrath makes no sense at all because the fifth seal, nothing happens. The fifth seal are the souls of God's people going, hey, how long is this going to happen, Lord? So how can mm-hmm. we conclude that the seals are God bringing wrath upon the people so that they might repent when the fifth seal, nothing even happens? Instead, I think we need to read the seals, trumpets, and bowls going, oh, this is what God does. I think it's Romans, uh, Romans chapter one. God gave them over. Mm-hmm. Uh, God says, you know what? You want this? I'm going to let you suffer the consequences. Adam and Eve, you want to eat of the tree without me telling you to eat? Instead, you're going to follow your own wisdom and listen to that serpent? Guess what happens? A, I'm kicking you out of the garden. And because I kick you out of the garden, guess what's going to happen? Your son's going to kill your other son. And then after that, Lamech's going to kill two men and boast about it. And guess what? And after that, this is what's that we're reaching the we're, we're reaping the consequences of our own actions and of what happens when human beings are in power. It's not God inflicting the world. Instead, God gave his son and sent us also to follow the son by taking up our cross and following him. And that is how God redeems the nation. So he's lovingly allowing the nations to continue 
he's still sovereign, no doubt about it. And in in order that he's allowing the nations to to continue, or he's lovingly allowing the nations to continue in their power because he desires that the nations repent, and that he desires that they repent, and they only repent ultimately at over time because God's people lovingly lay down their lives for the sake of the nations. It's what's so a love story. So I'm following that. And I, in one sense, that totally makes sense. But yeah. uh, there's a part of me that hears what you're saying. And it's like, okay, is, is Rob a universalist now? Does right. he deny a final judgment? Do you believe in a lake of fire? How does, how does that fit into what's happening here? Yeah. No, I'm not a universalist. That'd be wonderful if every nation and everyone in every nation was indeed saved, but it's not yes. the case. There is a lake of fire. What that means has to be discussed, and we'll discuss that when we get when mm -hmm. we get there. There is a final judgment. There is a great white throne judgment, which is a final judgment. And those uh, who don't follow the, the lamb, who continue to follow the beast, are unfortunately suffer the second death. And as a result of that, it's the lake of fire, whatever that might mean. Uh, and unfortunately, not everyone actually is saved, although I, I wish, and I think we all wish that everyone indeed was. But there is a final judgment. God doesn't bring judgment and not everyone is indeed is indeed saved, unfortunately. Yeah. So with that, I mean, we're looking at these big topics and it's like, it says lake of fire. Why don't we just believe like you had mentioned like, okay, what do we mean by that? It just says lake of fire. Shouldn't we just literally take it at its word? It's a literal lake of fire. Yes. So that's a larger question. And I think we're going to run out of time today to discuss this. So let's, let's put that on the topic, the docket for next time. And I would simply say this. Those who espouse literalism and demand literalism, and, it, and it's not, by the way, an option of, is it literal or is it spiritual? That, it's not, no, no, no. The way I would say it is this, is Jesus the temple of God? Yes. Literally? Yes. He literally is the temple of God. But that doesn't mean that he's a block of wood or stone or whatever mm -hmm. the temple's made out of. That's not what's happening there. And so I think we misunderstand. But the other way of saying it would be that people who espouse literalism actually don't believe in everything literally anyways. Correct. And, and then yeah. the other question, because like, well, what does literal even mean? And I think we have a mm -hmm. lot to discuss. So I think we'll get to that next time. Okay. You know, we're prepping. We're, I feel like right now we're uh, uh, Frodo and Samwise, and we're mm -hmm. like looking at how far we need to walk to get to yes, Mount Doom, yeah. although this isn't Mount Doom. But like, man, we're, we're in for a journey. How, how can folks continue to prep in this just, uh, you know, in terms of like a homework or uh, an idea like that? Yeah, excellent. What, I, what we really want to do with this series then is to say, you know, hey, study Revelation with us and go through the text with us. I would encourage you to read the text of Revelation and reread it, because if John is using repetition and key words over and over and over again, then the best way to see that is to read the text a lot. And as you go through the text a third time or a fourth time, you're like, wait a minute, he said that earlier. Where did he, where did he say that earlier? And maybe you have computer technology that you can look up. Uh, or you just listen to the podcast and, and find out. Uh, so I encourage you to do that. And then if you have questions, feel free to ask us. So send an email to my email address. Probably I'll go ahead and give it out is rdalrymple19 at gmail.com, which is my first initial last name. So r-d-a-l-r-y-m-p-l-e-1-9 at gmail.com. And just said, hey, I got a question about the book of Revelation. And then we'll try to answer that on the podcast. So that'll be some things to do um, there also. And then I encourage you to, you know, maybe get my book, Follow the Lamb, which is a guide to reading, mm -hmm. understanding, and applying the book of Revelation, which is kind of like a how to get started with the book of Revelation. I think you might enjoy that. Of course, I have other books on my Amazon page as well. And then in the show notes, I'm going to put um, some links to some uh, um, blogs that I've written on the um, related to the book of Revelation and the seals and things like that, or Revelation, a love story. I have a, a blog on that. 
And then I'm also going to put in the show notes, a list of books that we recommend that if you want to go deeper, you can study these books. There uh, also commentaries and other popular books that uh, might be available. And then again, remind you that live as of December, as of uh, April 10, I mean, technically of 2023. April 7th, of 2023 is a devotional guide. So if you want to spend the seven weeks, seven weeks of five days a week or five, five weeks of seven days a week, studying the book of Revelation as a devotional guide, I really encourage you to do that. That's going to get you in the text as well as get you to think about what does that mean for us? Those are some things I think you, you can do. In terms of resources and whatnot, uh, one thing I don't see on, on the list that you're providing for me that you're going to put in there, um, you, you'd mentioned earlier about how like you're comp- comparing and contrasting Caesar against Jesus. And it's like, you know, when we talked about the power dynamic, it's like, you know, this is about Rome. But if you're not familiar with a lot of the the, the first century world, that's not going to jump out at you. I would really recommend uh, David De Silva's little book, Unholy Allegiances. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you like that one or if you wouldn't want yeah, it. Yeah, I do. Uh, but, I do. Yeah, because yeah, I think that one's pretty digestible for uh, even a lay person. Yeah. And that just really opens up your yeah. eyes to a lot of what's happening in terms of even coinage and uh, just how the military is viewed and all that. And I think that's really helpful to see. Yeah. When, if you're familiar with Revelation and you start reading that book, all of a sudden it's like, oh, this stuff makes sense now. Yeah. All right, ma'am. So Good. you need to get out of your so, hey, closet so week, she can go to bed. I do. Hopefully the next time we record, I will be in my new house. Absolutely. Uh, Sounds great. But, uh, <laughs> and we'll invite everyone over for a barbecue. I'll do brisket. And okay, pork cool. Butt. So uh, everyone, everyone from the podcast who wants to come over, we'll do a live event at my house. Uh, Not really. Absolutely. But, and and then, of course, and then we'll post it on the, on the, uh, on, on the podcast like two weeks after actually it was live. So they'll all have missed exactly. it. Exactly. We invited you. <laughs> we just didn't. We invited you. I don't know where you happened. Here. It was two weeks ago. So (laughs) nice. All right, man. All right, everyone. Hope you're, hope you're enjoying this. This is going to be so much fun. I I know for me, this is a really good excuse to jump into a couple commentaries that I have not read yet on revelation. I'm excited about this. Hopefully you guys are uh, digging it through as well. And we will catch you guys next week. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we would love for you to share the work of determined truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.